From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please also be kind enough to leave us a favorable review, especially at Apple. The Journal's editorial page, we believe fervently in free expression, and each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor issues of topical interest in the fields of politics, economics, business, culture, and science. We speak in depth to people who are leading figures in the field, practitioners, experts, or commentators, to give us all a better understanding of the major trends driving our times. Now, this week, my guest is Douglas Murray, prolific author, commentator, and public intellectual. Douglas has been one of the most effective and widely heard voices in recent years in the struggle against the seemingly inexorable march of progressive ideology through the culture institutions and politics of the West. His recent books have established him as one of the sharpest observers and critics of the trends that have in the last decade or so undermined the very cohesion and purpose of the great Western democracies. In the strange death of Europe in 2017, he chronicled the apparently voluntary collapse, suicide as he called it, of the old continent's moral and civilizational identity in the face of mass immigration. The madness of crowds in 2019 captured the insanity and terrifying destructive potential of the identity politics that have come to dominate public discourse. But now he's out with a new book, The War on the West, How to Prevail in the Age of Unreason, which examines perhaps one of the most remarkable phenomena in all of modern history, the apparent ambition to denigrate and actually destroy everything that's made Western civilization. A threat or more remarkable because it comes entirely from within. Douglas Murray joins me now. Douglas, thank you very much for joining us. Very good to be with you. Congratulations on the book. And I should say, you, like me, are a Brit who's uh, much younger than I am, but you grew up in Britain. You spent most of your time there, but you've recently translated to the United States, at least for a while. How's that working out for you? Do you like the water better over here? (laughs) I love the water in the United States. There's a lot of reasons why I'm here. The main one is that uh, it's been my view for some time that uh, the US is now a net exporter of bad ideas. It used to be a net importer of bad ideas, principally from uh, the old continent. But that in recent years, America has generated and then propagated and pushed out a whole set of new ideologies, very radical ideologies, which I've written about in recent books. The last book, The Madness of Crowd, is in particular, and now in The War on the West. And I believe that if if you're going to try to confront, critique, understand, and much more of these ideologies, you have to be at the absolute center of the uh, argument. It's very, very interesting and important what is happening in relation to this in the UK, in Canada, Australia, and so on. But really, I think you have to address the first part of the virus. And that, sadly, uh, I say that as somebody who's a lifelong Atlanticist and lover of this country. Sadly, at the moment, the centre of that virus is America. Yeah, me too. And uh, I agree with all of that. But it's always struck me, and it's been particularly true in recent years, but it's always struck me that some, somebody once said that nowhere will you find a more impassioned, more aggressive, more destructive critique of America than within America itself. For all of the anti-Americanism in the world, you won't find it more passionately held or expressed by a certain type of Americans who, as we are going to discuss, have become, unfortunately, rather dominant in the culture in recent years. So let's talk about this war as you describe it, Douglas. Let me just quote from right at the beginning of your book. You say it's a cultural war and it's being waged remorselessly against all the roots of the Western tradition and against everything good that the Western tradition has produced. Now, I'm going to challenge you on some of your arguments you make in the book, but give us a summary, if you would, there, of what you mean by that. How do you characterize this war? Well, it begins, as I say, with a a war on the peoples of the West. Um, Racism has existed in every society in human history. It's a very ugly trade, one of the ugliest human traits. 
and it has existed in the West, of course, and there's undoubtedly racism that goes on today. However, there's only one permissible form of racism, and that permissible form is racism against white people, about whom almost anything can now be said. And I write in the first chapter of the book about this phenomenon. You know, um, every month there is a new pathologizing term about whiteness. You get people like uh, best-selling author Robin DiAngelo writing about white fragility. You get people coming up with white tears, white female tears. Just last year, we had suddenly invented white rage. And anyone who thinks that these are sort of, you know, obscure tendencies or obscure ideas that don't really have any impact on the real world should remember that no lesser figure than General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was talking about this white rage in front of Congress last year. He was uh, willing to play along with this same game, this pretense that white people can be talked about in terms that would simply not be tolerated if any other group of people were being talked about in this way. So the first thing is a sort of war, weirdly, a war on the majority populations in Western countries, a very remorseless, very ugly, very demeaning war against them on the basis of nothing other than skin color. Then you get the war on the Western history, and that, that for America in particular is one of the most devastating things, where people in the West, particularly in America, are born into a kind of sin, particularly obviously white Americans, are born into a kind of sin and everyone else is born into a type of virtue. So that, for instance, instead of seeing that racism is a part of American history, as it is a part of the history of peoples across the world, it is seen as the story of America. That instead of it being part of the story of America, slavery is the founding of America. And again, not an obscure origin that. 1619 Project is a project of the New York Times, trying, as it says on its own terms, to reframe the founding date of the American Republic so that it is founded in slavery. Then you get the war on Western ideas, the Western religion, Western philosophy, where everybody who created both the religious and the secular traditions in the West has in recent years been torn down remorselessly for, again, sins of being alive in the past and not happening to share all of the views that we might have in 2022. And then finally, the war on Western culture, where absolutely everything in the culture, from the arts, from music to literature and much more, is also torn apart and only seen in this remorseless and unforgiving light of saying, you know, if there's anything that can be pinned on it that has anything to do with slavery or colonialism, then we will pin it on it and it will have to be looked at through that light. And of course, as I say in the book in various interludes, as you know, Jerry, I say that, you know, this is a very peculiar thing to do. Firstly, because actually most people want to have pride in themselves and to be taught to hate yourself, to be taught that your own culture is uniquely bad is pretty unusual. But of course, it has a follow on, which is what is the rest of the world doing whilst countries like America are doing this to themselves? You know, did the China Daily News, when it last week put out a cartoon of Uncle Sam behind the Oval Office desk, surrounded by corpses, and this organ of the Chinese Communist Party claimed this is the story of America. They said George Floyd and uh, separations at the border, as if the CCP in Beijing cares a damn about either racism or indeed separating families, because if they did, of course, a million people wouldn't be in concentration camps in China as we speak. But that's the sort of follow-on question from all of this, which I leave lingering. We're doing this to ourselves. What's the rest of the world doing? And might they be taking advantage of this moment of extraordinary massacres in our own society? 
Why do you think it's become so passionate and so intense and this this war has been waged so aggressively recently? I mean, it is striking that, you know, 30 years ago in our lifetimes, the West was triumphant. We'd won the Cold War. We'd reached the end of history in Frank Fukuyama's famous phrase, our values. You know, we always acknowledged our flaws. We'd always acknowledged America. God knows it's not a perfect country founded with slavery and persecution and other things. But we'd progressed. We'd achieved this extraordinary civilizational success. And on top of that, it was so successful that we not only triumphed over all comers, totalitarian states and others, but actually all countries kind of wanted to be like us. That was just 30 years ago. Now, here we are a generation later, where we, as exactly as you describe, we're actually being taught that our civilization is intrinsically evil, that it actually needs to be owned and devalued and, you know, and, and rejected. How did that change so quickly? Well, to sort of steel man, as it were, the people who I'm critiquing, to give their argument its strongest play, you could say that this is a natural swing, a sort of to and fro of the ideological and historical pendulum. But perhaps not in our lifetimes, but not long before, there was a sort of rather simplistic narrative of the West, which was taught, which covered over and elided various of the nastier things that had happened. And that therefore there was sort of a need to rectify that a need for revisionist looks at history, a need for a new look at colonialism, a new look at slavery. You could say that, and that, that what has been going on in recent years is, is that process. Uh, I argue this at one point in the book when I say, you know, why have they come, why have these various sort of people who write and talk about race in America, why have they come in recent years for all of the heroes of the Enlightenment? And, you know, they say the sort of the steel man argument is to say, well, they've done it because these Enlightenment philosophers were alive in a time of colonialism, were alive in a time of slavery. Some of them benefited financially. Some of them said what things that we now regard as ugly and that therefore this is some long overdue correction. The reason I don't actually believe that that is the case is it's such an odd time for such a correction to occur. I mean, contra Ibramex, Kendi D'Angelo and others, it is not as if America or Britain, for instance, have never had to confront their pasts before. It is not as though America and Britain did not confront the questions of slavery or colonialism in the 19th century. Indeed, uh, Britain spent a significant amount of her national wealth not just abolishing slavery herself, but policing the high seas in order to make sure that the slave trade was abolished across the globe. This happened at great cost to households across the country. So it isn't as if this wasn't confronted before. America fought a very bloody, very brutal civil war about this in the midst of the 19th century. So I think that this claim that, as it were, this is overdue correcting and reframing is disingenuous. It's done by people who pretend, as it happens, that the last two centuries of debate did not occur, as if the two, last two centuries of reform did not occur. And just a quick thing on that, I think that this thing you mentioned, Jerry, about America not being perfect at its founding, I do throw the question out there, which country is? Which society is? The whole history of humanity is people going to other places and taking their things if they're stronger. It's only in recent centuries, and I have to say in the Western world most prominently, 
that we've had, for instance, the principle of the peaceful handover of power. Historically, that is a highly unusual thing. Globally, still today, it's not the norm. So when we look at our own pasts, we also have to look at them, as I say in the book, in that context. What was the rest of the world doing? If they were doing the same things as us, then sure, we can hold ourselves to our highest standard. But to hold ourselves to a standard that is totally disassociated from the context that the past was happening in, it reveals, I think, a kind of vengeance. And that is the simple answer to your question, Jerry, is what we are really talking about are, to, to quote Nietzsche, people who talk of justice but mean revenge. It's a myth too, isn't it, really? This idea that we've all been inculcated with the glories of the West and never exposed to any self-criticism or any acknowledgement of the problematic history. I mean, like you, Douglas, I consider myself well-educated and, again, a little bit older than you, but I went to very good schools in England and Oxford and I was educated. And, you know, we were educated in the history of the British Empire, but it was not the sort of rah-rah you know, isn't it magnificent that we kind of, you know, exported British culture everywhere. We learned a lot about the evils of the East India Company and what Britain had done in India and, and in China and in elsewhere. We learned about what happened in the United States. And I think here in the United States, and by the way, I've got children here in the United States who are now in their 20s who were therefore being educated in the, you know, the early 2000s. And I can remember very, very well them coming home as very young children at school. And they didn't by any means go to some sort of, you know, liberal nirvana of a progressive school. You know, the, the complications around Thanksgiving, for example, which was no longer being taught as this wonderful, you know, moment when the pilgrims sat down with the natives and wasn't it amazing? And they were told the reality of the early years of the colonies. But so, I mean, of course, we can all learn more about everything. Even the most well-educated among us knows the, about everything about everything. But this idea that we've been taught until, you know, Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo came along, the entire canon of the Western educational experience has been all about how great the white man is and how, you know, fantastic his achievements are and diminishing his flaws and his sins. That's actually a myth, isn't it? Yes, it's been a myth for a very long time. The people who make this claim just haven't bothered to look at where the debate has been, not just now, but for decades. Uh, I went through all of the relevant textbooks in American schools and in British schools. The study of the slave trade in America and the history of colonialism in the UK are actually mandatory in the history curriculums in both countries. That has been the case for a long time. The idea, as you say, that American students or British students are taught that slavery didn't happen or that the empire was solely great is not just some years, but some generations out of date. To the extent that school children in either country learn anything, they're certainly not ignorant of these sort of dark parts of our past. If anything, they form an overemphasized element in the curriculum, if you can ever completely estimate that. But, you know, that for instance, learning about the evils of colonialism is as important in British schools as learning about the Second World War. Well, you know, fine. But it is simply not the case that either America or Britain are our societies now, or have been for generations, which teach a one-sided and at that rah-rah flag-waving version of our histories is quite other. We need to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Douglas Murray. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. 
immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Welcome back. We're talking with author of a new book, The War on the West, Douglas Murray. As you said, your first chapter is about race. You've summarized it very briefly at the open here and about how it is quite remarkable. We live now in a society where it's not only permissible, but actually widely encouraged to express racial stereotypes and indeed a degree of heavy degree of animus towards one particular race, which is white people. Let me sort of take the devil's advocate position a little bit here with you and say, look, of course, there are these crazy extremists out there who seem to, you know, glory in in wanting to sort of persecute white people. But let's defend some of this that's going on, some of this re-reckoning, as they call it, and say, look, yes, America has made great progress. Of course it has. It's made extraordinary progress since slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, obviously the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s. But it's also important to acknowledge that there remain tremendous obstacles in the way of genuine racial equality and opportunity. And we can argue about what those obstacles are, but you can just measure it in terms of outcomes. African-Americans in particular do significantly worse. Now, you know, your namesake, uh, Charles Murray, has written very well about this and about two underlying problems are one, you know, relatively low educational attainment and two, crime. But again, we only begs another question, which is what's behind that. You can understand, can't you, that people look at the state of America today, they look at the state, they look at economic and social indicators, and they look at the broad state of the African American population, and they say, this is a population that is still significantly disadvantaged. And it is incumbent upon us, the majority whites who benefited enormously from the opportunities that America has given us, it is still incumbent on us to do much more to redress that, that maybe some of this language is a bit extreme, but there is still a fundamental problem, whether you want to call it systemic racism or whatever, there is still a fundamental problem in America with racial injustice. Well, I don't agree, actually, with that. Uh, because, of course, if, if it's about equity, uh, if it is about racial justice not existing until all outcomes are the same, then I'm, I have news for people, which is that we will never arrive at equity. The great challenge to what you've just described already exists in America, and it doesn't involve white people. It is true that uh, median household income and indeed assets are lower among black families than they are among white families in the US. But Asians in America are better off in each of these indicators than are white families. And Hispanics are just below white families and above black families in America. Now, what does this mean? There are people who say the whole thing means racism, that this is a unipolar problem. All we need to do is to address racism and all of these inequities and alleged inequalities would disappear. But that means that you look at what I would suggest is a highly complex set of problems and pretend that there is only one lens through which to see it, and that is the lens of racism. Whereas in actual fact, it is perfectly clear, I think, almost any of the studies show this, that for instance, uh, black unemployment levels black educational levels, uh, household income, and much more, that what we're dealing with here are multidimensional problems. Each of these things has more than one thing to explain them. And if that wasn't the case, 
if it was just about racism, it does not make sense that currently in the US, Asian Americans outperform white Americans disproportionately. So what could be the explanation for that? Well, uh, the people who argue that everything is because of race don't have an explanation. They just ignore it. But if, if we were living in a white supremacist society or an institutionally racist society, it's an odd thing for that society to suddenly invite in people who outperform whites in that society. And nobody really has a problem with that. It's a very odd racist society that would allow that. So clearly there must be other elements at play. And race could be a part of it, but it can't be the only part of it. Again, I don't disagree with almost all of what you say, but the difference in outcome and performance between Asians and blacks would have to at least take into account some aspect of the legacy that African-Americans have faced. I mean, both the practical legacy in certain terms, and there are still certain uh, legacies of things like housing policies and things like that, but also the longer term legacy of policies that did discriminate actively against African-Americans. I mean, in my lifetime, in my, not in yours, but in my lifetime, African-Americans were not able to you know, drink at the same water fountain or go to the same schools in some parts of the country. And, and, and that the legacy of that, my suspicion is you don't dispel that legacy in a, even in a couple of generations. And that's something obviously that Asian-Americans, they don't face the same legacy problems, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? No, I don't think that is fair to say. I think that everybody has suffered their own problems. Well, what about the Vietnamese-American community and the people who came over as boat people to the US and refugees? Many of them uh, in the 1970s uh, had spent years living in concentration camps and came to America with absolutely nothing. Were they more privileged than somebody born and brought up in America who was black? I'm not certain that anyone can say so. I'm not certain anyone can say so. And this is going to have to keep being a problem for the people who claim that the principal lens through which to look at America is solely through the race lens. And there's one other thing I would just add to that, which is this. Let us take for a moment the idea that it was the case, that America actually has been and is still up to the present an institutionally racist society, which specifically instills anti-black racism from the white community and happens to skip out that racism in relation to all other ethnic groups. Let us pretend for a moment that has been historically and is at the moment the situation America is in. What would be the worst way to rectify that? I would argue that the worst way to rectify it is the way in which Ibram Kendi argues it should be rectified, which is to say there has been past prejudice and it should be solved by present day prejudice, i.e. Black Americans were prejudiced against in the past, and that the way to rectify it is to be prejudiced against white Americans in the present. This is what in my previous book, The Madness of Crowds, in relation to gender, ideology, sexuality, and much more, I described as the temptation of the overcorrection. In the past, and again, nobody would deny, just as you can't deny that racism existed, nobody could deny that women did not have as much freedom to make choices in their lives as men did. But what was the moment where the feminist movement moved from doing an immense amount of good, provable historical good, into starting to eat itself. It's the moment when it overcorrects, when it decides that the answer to women being prejudiced against in the past is to be prejudiced against men in the present. If women were done down in the past, let's do down men in the present. And this has been going on, this wild swing to, as it were, correct a historic wrong by a present day wrong. That is going on at the moment. And as readers of the book will see, 
I mean, the, the examples I give of people indulging themselves in this are not obscure examples. I give, for example, the speech which was given at Yale in April 2021 by a woman called Aruna Kilanani, and she used her speech at Yale University to, among other things, say that there are no good apples out there in the white community. White people will suck you dry. They are, quote, a demented, violent predator with holes in their brain. They are out of their minds and have been for a long time. Now, if anyone thought that the way to solve any residual racism against black people or any historical racism against black people would be to indulge in this, then Kilanani's your person. One other quick quote from her. On the stage at Yale, she said she fantasized regularly about, quote, unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step like I did the world a f favor. Now, this is proto-genocidal talk. It would be absolutely deprecated and rightly if it was leveled against any group in society. If Yale had given a platform to a white professor to say that they fantasized about shooting black Americans in the head, we would all know what we would call those people. We would all know what to do about it. But this one case exists. As I say, the kindest way to interpret it is to see it as a form of overcorrection. I would regard it actually as nothing other than a form of revenge. Yeah, I agree. And and I think it's a very important point that about the platform and the fact that Yale would invite someone to do that. That's an, obviously an extreme view. And I'm thank God, I don't think even some of the more radical, um, you know, racial equity crowd uh, right now actually think it's a good idea to have people saying it's great if we just go out and unload uh, a shotgun into the heads of white people. But what's fascinating is that exactly as you say, she's given the opportunity to say that and you're not really allowed to kind of challenge it. She may be an extremist, but she's an extremist whose views are kind of tolerated in the kind of climate that we're in. But I want to move on quickly to, there's a particularly fascinating part of the book where you recount, and I remember it quite well, an episode where someone, a kind of critic of critical racial theory and a lot of this language that we've been talking about goes on MSNBC and is asked, what is it that this person likes about being a white person? And you rightly point out in the book that he kind of gives a very honorably evasive answer. But then, I'm, then, then I want you, this is what I want you to talk about. You then sort of pick up the cudgels, as it were, and say, you know, here's the answer you can give. And tell us a little bit about that. It, it is striking that even to do that, even from you and even from someone of your you know, acknowledged background standing, it's quite a brave thing to do because it is so rare to hear someone say, here's what's been good about white people. So just tell us what you briefly summarise what you then went on to describe. Well, yes, it relates to Chris Rufo. He was asked this question um, by Mark Lamont Hill on Black News Network. Uh, I've actually debated Mark Lamont Hill myself in Doha some years ago. Uh, he's very smart, knows how to put his finger on a point very acutely. And he did so in this particular interview with Chris Rufo of the Manhattan Institute. And Chris Rufo, he, he said, what, you know, he said, I, I know what I like about being black. And he said, you know, the sense of community, music, uh, rich heritage, and so on, none of which anyone would deny. Lamont Hill said to Rufo, I know what I like about being black. What do you like about being white? Now, Rufo sidestepped it, as you say, in the only way that I think is survivable, which is to say, I don't like to think in those terms. As it happens, that's my own view. Uh, being asked what I like about being white seems to me like being asked what I like about being a man. I don't walk around the day thinking, 
of myself as a man or as white. You know, these are, to me, boring and insignificant identifiers. They are, for all of us, chance things in which we have no say and therefore take no particular pride. Now, Chris Rufo basically answers it by saying what I've just said. He said, I don't like to think in those terms. I don't want you to encourage me to think in those terms. I say that there are essentially only two other answers that he could give, and they get closer and closer to the boundaries of impermissibility. Uh, the first is to basically say that being white is an amorphous thing, but it is something that people can become, as it were, a sort of convening place, like the United Nations of race. Okay, maybe white people can't become black, but any black person who wants to effectively be white in this definition can be, anyone else can be. It's a sort of, that it would move from being a racial category to a cultural category. The third thing I say is the nuclear option. And the nuclear option is what would have probably detonated Rufo's career if he'd have said it. But it's one that's worth pointing out, which is to say, okay, you've taunted me into it. Basically, white people in particular have spent recent generations being polite. They have put up with this sort of talk about their history. White Americans have put up with talk about their history and demeaning of their history. But let's stop being polite for a moment. Let's stop pretending. When the world has a pandemic, do we go to First Nations peoples to find cures and vaccines? No. When we need to find cures for Alzheimer's, for cancers, for all sorts of other terrible diseases, do we use the Western system of medicine or do we go to an Aboriginal people's tribe and ask them what their view is to sort out this complex issue? We know what the answer is. And here's the thing. It happens that white people came up with many of the things that include the foundations of modern liberal democracy, the bases for representative governance, rights in a society, which after all, again, is not the norm historically and is not the norm around the world today. It happens that white people, among others, um, were the ones who came up with the scientific method, which works not because it was come up with by white people, but because it works. It happens that white people, as well as others, including Arabs, came up with what we now think of as the system of mathematics. But contra the race theorists, the fact that white people came up with mathematics of the kind we use today does not mean that mathematics is white. Uh, it means that mathematics works. And uh, the same thing you can say with music and much more. This is before even talking about what the West has given the world in terms of culture, invention, uh, uh, markets, and much more. And so I say at the end, effectively, this would be an answer you could give. Say, I don't want to talk in these terms, but if you do make us have to talk in these terms, you're not going to win that argument very easily. If we don't give in, if we stop being courteous, you're not going to like it. And the summary I give on this is as follows. If you don't respect me, why should I respect you? If you don't respect my ancestors, why should I respect yours? If you have no care for my past and my culture, why should I have any care for yours? And that is the standoff moment, which, in my view, Western people have, I think, justifiably stepped back from saying in recent years. However, 
were the sort of Kennedys, D'Angelo's and others to succeed in their mission, they will provoke white people, first of all, to think of themselves explicitly in those terms and then search for the ways to find pride within it. And it isn't hard to find that, but it is a disagreeable option in my view. D'Angelo says in her book, White Fragility, which sold 500,000 copies after the death of George Floyd, says in her book, there is no good form of whiteness and whiteness cannot be escaped. If people like that get their way, it seems to me, first of all, that they can't, because you couldn't tell a minority group not to have any pride in themselves and also not be able to escape. You sure as hell can't tell a majority group that that should be the case in their lives. But secondly, what people like this are going to provoke, and I don't know if they know this or not, what they are going to provoke is a vicious backlash. You cannot tell people that there is nothing good about themselves, that they are uniquely evil, and expect them to sit back and take that for the rest of time. I suppose the wider problem I have with this idea of whiteness as either uniquely evil or, or even, even whiteness as, as, you know, as a source of, you know, although white people have done great things and evil things, whiteness as a sort of source of great sort of civilizational progress is that, you know, it doesn't make much sense to think in such black and white, if you forgive the terminology, black and white moral terms. Just think about the last hundred years. The greatest crimes probably in the history of humanity have been committed in the last hundred years by white people against other white people. I mean, the Germans wiped out six million Jews and many, many other white people and caused the deaths of tens of millions of people, mostly white people across Europe. So I find this idea that somehow this is a war that we need to understand history in the sense of some, you know, kind of existential clash between the evil white people uh, killing or, or exercising some sort of um, lordship over black people or minorities. Just to be meaningless. It's totally facile, among other things. I mean, you know, we know who killed more Asian people than anyone in history. Uh, almost certainly uh, Mao. Mao and Pol Pot probably probably killed. Yes, who's killed more Arabs than anyone in the last century? Almost certainly Saddam Hussein. Uh, oh, and now Bashar al-Assad, of course. So, I mean, to look at world history through a white on black lens, you know, is so preposterous so inadequate. And as I say, I mean, we should be able to have an estimation of our own past, which is neither tub-thumping and um, flag-waving and ignorant of anything bad, and equally, that doesn't fall into the idea that there's nothing we've done that's good. And, and you know, th I'm afraid that the demonstration that that second one in particular is such a mistake is going on every day. No boat going across the Mediterranean to enter Europe meets a boat coming the other way of French people trying to escape to North Africa. No flood of migrants goes across the southern border from America into Central America. The footfall demonstrates the truth, which is that the Western societies are the most successful, not because they're white, but because they work. And to pretend that isn't the case is to ignore not just history, but the, just the footfall of the present day. The subtitle of your book is How to Prevail in the Age of Unreason. And your book, I think it's fair to say, is more analytical than prescriptive. But tell us, how do we turn the tide here? Yes, the subtitle only exists, as you say, on the British edition. The American uh, edition doesn't have the subtitle. I think one of the first things is not to fall into the trap that I've just outlined, is to not fall into the re-racialization that in the name of anti-racism is now being fostered upon us all. 
I think it's an extraordinarily retrograde movement in American public life and in American political life. I think it may yet prove to be a generational one because there are much more impressive figures coming up now, including black American writers and thinkers and others who have an infinitely more nuanced and just a thorough understanding of the moral as well as the historical issues we're talking about here. So my own sort of shorthand answer is not to be provoked into being the sort of people that the neo-racists would like to make everybody. And to be able, in summary, to have just a reasonable estimation of our past. You know, Americans have the right to feel pride in their founding. They have the right to feel pride in Thomas Jefferson and the other founding fathers. They have right to feel pride in Abraham Lincoln. They have right to feel pride in what they did in the 20th century. They have the right not to have all of these holy places assaulted and pulled down. You know, other peoples have the right to pride and to a culture, and so do people in America, so do people in the West. We needn't decide to fall into this trap of believing that pride in the good things that we've done in the past is some kind of evil. It isn't. It's entirely natural. And the facts happen to be on its side. Douglas Murray, couldn't think of a better way to end than on that uh, positive and uplifting note and uh, challenging note, challenge the prevailing orthodoxy that we have to deal with. Douglas Murray, author of the new book, The War on the West, which is published this week. We are enormously grateful to have had you on the podcast. Douglas, thanks very much. It's a great pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much for listening, and please do join us again next week when we'll have another deep exploration of one of the big issues driving our world. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.